Hi, and thank you for joining us. I'm Lila Glasso-Francis, president of the Carolyn Glasso-Bailey Foundation. And today you are going to be hearing our latest artist podcast, Bruce Mason, a Carolyn Glasso-Bailey Foundation board member in conversation with artist Diane Best. Best has long been drawn to the expansive emptiness and harsh landscapes of the Southwest desert. She experiences the same sense of discovery and wonder for place while traveling to Iceland and the remote fjords of Greenland. Through drawings, photos, and films, the works in her current show, When Ice Burns at Porch Gallery Ojai, reflect the commonality of vastness, starkness, and space in the dramatic desert and frozen landscapes. Utilizing contemporary theories of photography, cinema, and digital imaging, Best updates the tradition of the 19th century American conservationist artists. She focuses not just on the severe terrains of the places she documents, but also on the people and cultures that inhabit those regions. Her mandala-like drawings incorporate images of Viking runes and Pueblo pottery designs with landscapes, elements of Iceland, and the desert southwest. Her photographs and film round out the series highlighting the congruent beauty and isolation of these areas. Sit back and enjoy while we hear Diane speak about her work and this lovely new show opening in Ojai this month. Diane Best, hello. Hello. And uh, welcome. It's nice to be here. Welcome to the foundation and to the Porch Gallery, and congratulations on your show, which looks very, very, very good. Mm-hmm. You know, nice and simple and contemplative and meditative, and and some beautiful photographs. The photographs of the uh, icebergs, I particularly love. I know we don't have any gear today. No, we so have the musk, musk yeah. ox, and the uh, Joshua, Joshua tree. Tree on Joshua Tree Bark. Well, it's, it's actually the wood from the tree. Trunk. Oh, really? It's oh, 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 bark. oh, It's like a veneer. Like a, How thick is it? Um, maybe a sixteenth or thirty-second of an inch. And you got that from a friend's father who had. Uh, I found that uh, at a farmer's market in Joshua Tree. This uh, man's father had. He'd taken a dead Joshua tree back in the 70s and put it on two lathes and took chisels to it and peeled it, basically. And peeled it, right. flattened it out. So I was really lucky to get that, and I've used it a lot, but I'm running out, so I'm pretty sad. Um, So Joshua trees are endangered and protected and all that, but he found a dead one on his property and did that. so. So they're special, but they are on that wood. So he, and he was peeling them along the lines of the rings then, right, I would assume? Well, they don't really have rings. Joshua trees are really different. They're not really a tree. Are they a cactus? Uh, they're actually from the lily family. Really? Believe it or not, yeah. No, I did not know that. That's, that's, so, and that's I know that's I, I was living in a remote place uh, off-grid, like 14 miles from the paved road. And we were driving in one day, and the Joshua tree had fallen down across the road. A pretty, you know, fresh, it wasn't dead. I think the wind had just knocked it over or something. So we had to cut it up with a chainsaw to get it out of the road. And it's like cutting ginger root, if you can imagine that, a gigantic ginger root. It was so wet in there. 
I think we went through uh, three chainsaw blades because <laughs> it would just gum up right away. You know, brand it was so new wet. chain. Yeah, took three to get, and it wasn't that big thing. That did, big did, did it have a specific thing. smell to it? Um, it's interesting. I, I, it's not any particular strong smell at all. I have none in my memory. Right. So it wasn't. So no, yeah, nothing not memorable. Like ginger, was yeah, yeah. It's pretty bland. Can you cook with it, you know? If you take little bits of it, can you put it in your desert uh, stew? Well, I know the Native stew? Americans used to take the seeds. Uh -huh. They had uh, produced a, a lot of seeds, these big white flowers in the spring, and I think they'd grind them up and make something out of it. And, but and, I've never eaten it. And it. But it also can be fibrous, right? Could you weave with the fibers? Oh, what yeah, I'm, I'm to sure too. that they did that, too. Yeah. But you haven't done no. something like that. So you said that you know you don't have much more of that left. No. Then, and what will be next then? What what newfound object? Or do you already have it in your studio? Well, I've painted Joshua trees for probably close to twenty years now. Living there, I just I, on every kind of material, small paper, big paper, mostly paper. So I'm sure I'll find something else. But I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I'm specifically referring to like materials that you know that well, will inspire be, you in the well, way that the Joshua Tree material has. Yeah. Well, I used to paint them on other paper. I have. Oh, I actually okay. have a lot of handmade paper from Nepal uh -huh. that I got years ago. I was importing it with a friend for a while, and I ended up with a lot of it. So I have a lot of that. I'll probably go back to painting on that, and or something else I might find. What color is that paper, the, the, the Nepalese? Uh, well, some of it is off-white that's been bleached, and the uh, rest of it is sort of a paper bag brown color, which is like the a natural. Yeah. Nat no, more like a paper bag. Think of that brown. I always think of that as manila. That's not the right word. Well, manila, I think, is more cream color. Okay. Okay, paper <laughs> bag. Um, yeah, paper bag. And what is it made out of? That is made out of mulberry. And they use, use it a lot to make posters. It's really inexpensive paper, throwaway paper to them. That They make posters on it, and they just stick on the street. But, I mean, here we would think it's a beautiful handmade paper, and it's got twigs in it or sometimes footprints because yeah. they just kind of throw it down right. on the ground on a screen. Right. And, uh, so it's, it's pretty interesting paper. So I'm not trying to be flippant here. It'll come off that way. So now I'm learning that there's a lot of mulberry trees in Nepal. There must be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. Have you been to Nepal? Yeah, I've been there. And when you went to Nepal, were you doing some of the same things that you do, like when you go out into the deserts and go uh, up no, to the... No, when I was there, I was 20 years old, oh, actually. Oh, okay. I, was on a, I traveled around the world. I left when I was 19 and traveled around all the way around the world, spending a year doing it. That's great. Mm -hmm. And you can do that kind of thing at that age. Yeah, and back when I did it, I actually, I met some friends in Germany, and we drove together. We had a 1959 Mercedes diesel car. We all put in money and bought a new engine for it and drove to India. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was an amazing adventure. But we went to all these countries you can't, I mean, we drove through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. You just we, wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Not at all. Quite an adventure. 
And did you come back? So, so when you were in Nepal, you weren't going to, to remote places like you do now. That that kind of idea hadn't uh, come to you yet, or well, that. Well, I was. That actually, we were going to go hiking in the Himalayas, but I got really, really sick, and I, that cut that short. So, but my friends did that. But yeah, that started my. Tra I've always loved to travel, so was, I started as a teenager. I used to go to Europe as much as I could, and then I heard everybody was going to India at the time, in the early seventies. So of course I wanted to do that. And so then ultimately, I mean, I always like to think about this stuff as being journeys. And when I see your work and the little bit that I've talked to you before this, it just really impresses upon me that there's a journey there. And um, it's not just a journey of land or a journey of mileage, but there's also an inner journey there. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens for me when I write or I make a movie or direct. It's very much an inner journey. Um, can we talk a little bit about that and what that's like for you? And Sure. Well, yeah, it's, it's considering how much I've traveled, or I traveled a lot when I was young because I was able to. I was fortunate to yeah. have resources then. And then, you know, for big mid part of my life, I didn't travel as much internationally. But I've always liked to travel. I've always liked to be somewhere else and to explore. And, and that does relate to my work as well. Like, you know, it is, they're very connected. Sure. So, so when I first saw the desert, uh, I was in, living in L.A. And, and I had just moved there from San Francisco. And we, I had friends in, from San Francisco that moved to L.A. And they all started talking about the desert and going out there. And this was in the 80s. And so we used to go out with groups of, you know, my friends from San Francisco and L.A. And we'd go to the 29 Palms, stay at the 29 Palms Inn. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the sure. only place then. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe the place. I thought it was magic. And, and I, you know, years later, I ended up there. So maybe yeah. 10, yes. 12 years later, I yes. ended up living there. It is, it is very beautiful. And Joshua Tree is very beautiful, that whole environment. We were talking about this yesterday, though. It's, it's changed a little bit over the past yes. four years. And some of the things that I really loved about it, like Pappy and Harriet's, which isn't the desert, but... It's yeah. inhabited by people from the desert. It's just it right. just isn't there anymore, and I hope that that doesn't continue that way further well, and further out into the desert. What do you think about that? Do you well, see that? it's really happening, and I don't like it either because I I've been there for close to twenty years now, and yeah. I felt like a pioneer when I first yeah. moved there. I lived off grid in that off grid house, you know, fourteen miles from a paved road, and uh, I I just. I don't know. I, I'm moving to New Mexico, bottom line. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that yesterday, yeah. yeah. I'm moving further east, further out, so, you know, I still love the desert, but it feels like L.A. is coming that way. It I'm definitely sure you is. all feel it here, too. Yeah. You know, well, I do, but, you know. I don't want anybody to build anything else new <laughs> out in the groves. I really don't. It make, it, I, I actually get incensed. I had somebody walk out of my house one time. They got, I found that I was getting into a rant about it. And they said, you know, I need to leave now. Yeah, we have a lot of those <laughs> issues, too. And that's, like, because there's so many old houses in the desert. It's like, yeah. buy them and fix them up. And don't build new. But so you were exploring the desert before you started exploring Greenland and, oh, yeah, and, and those was, deserts yeah, oh, up yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, did, did, did it sort of... How, <laughs> 
was that a natural transition for you? Did you feel that, you know, I've done a lot here out in the desert now. I need to sort of change my sense of things. And I, I'll it do the extreme. It didn't happen that way at all. It, the way it happened, I was just thinking about this this afternoon. I, um, I was getting more and more into photography, technical photography and equipment and this and that. So I was looking at um, a newsletter I get one day and it had a, a photography trip to northern Finland to see the photograph the auroras in the winter. And I just thought, wow, I don't know that why. I just thought, yeah. I want to do that. And I'd never gone on a, any kind of tour thing before. You know, I never thought I was that kind of person. But I thought, well, with a photography group, that could be really interesting to get sure. to some really remote place. Sure. So I was about to sign up for it, and then I was looking more at the landscape in Finland and it didn't excite me that much, and so I thought, well, where else are there auroras? I seem to be drawn to the auroras, and then I was like, Iceland, and I started looking at the photos from there, and I'm like, oh my god, I had no idea. The landscape was so stark and beautiful and empty and extreme, and and it's very, and it's like, very ironically named too. E Yes, that's what they well, say. Well, actually, I think Greenland is very, very ironic. Yeah, because yeah. Greenland is colder than is, Iceland. And even more barren. Right. Yeah. So I ended up going to Iceland on a photography trip, which was amazing. And then I realized what I really wanted was icebergs. And Iceland doesn't really have icebergs. But you got it the icebergs. It has glaciers. Yeah. yeah those, so I, 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 I said yesterday, and I, would, I want to encourage everybody, if nothing else, go and see the iceberg pictures. They're really beautiful. They're really pristine and so well done. And there's so much color in them. And after a while, you realize that basically what you are looking at, if the schooner isn't in them, that really all you're looking at is water. Right. And very ancient. Which kind of hit me. Yeah. And very ancient You want to talk water. about that, about yeah, the ancientness of the water? Yeah, that's what icebergs? really struck me. These icebergs are they're breaking off of glaciers in Greenland. And every summer... They melt a little. They call it the calving season, where the icebergs break off the glaciers. But I really don't know how old those are, but it's it's got to be like a million years or thousands and thousands of years. So you think about that water frozen in that color. There's some scientific reason why it holds that blue color so much, which I can't repeat to you, but there but is you've a heard reason. It. I've heard it. But right. Well, it's, it's just it's a matter of light, then, like refract refraction of light, something like that. When I grew up in Ohio, and the snow would be really deep and it'd be really cold. When I grew up in Ohio, there right. underneath the uh, top layer of the snow, there would also oftentimes be a blue layer, and you'd see this kind of blue light. I think it has to do with the way the water melts underneath the surface oh, and then refreezes. Right. You were talking about, about about the caves. Yeah, in Iceland, right. that happens. The, in the glaciers, uh, in the summer, it, they start melting underneath, and they're like rivers of water underneath, and then it freezes again in the winter and creates these caves, so you can tour them in the winter to go to Iceland. I'd like to go. Yeah, it's an amazing yeah. time. I would recommend going in the winter. Did you take a lot of pictures of the, um, you know, the, the, lack of a better word, the steam pots and things like that? All the hot areas? Uh, uh, we, we didn't go to those areas okay. very much. We did right at the end. They're, they're big tourist areas, and there's a lot of people there. And It's oh. like going to Yellowstone oh. Park. Oh. Oh. I mean, you want to see it, but you you're not going to be there alone. Yeah. You know? 
You ever been there with busloads of people? So, I know there's more remote hot springs and things, but I was there in the winter, and I, they're more accessible in the summer. The hot springs are the geysers that you have in your uh, what I'm going to call your mandala stuff mm -hmm. pictures. Um, is that American or is that um, Iceland? Oh, that's Iceland. Okay, and then and the word geyser is actually an Icelandic word, meaning geyser. Meaning geyser. <laughs> meaning meaning hot, forceful water coming up yeah. at you. Yeah, I get think out they, of the way. they say geyser, or so they pronounce it differently and spelled G E Y S I R. That's where we get our word geyser from. That's good to know. Yeah. When you go out to Yellowstone. Right. So, so you and you were on a schooner then when you were yes. touring around the when icebergs. Went, yeah, to Greenland. Uh -huh. I went on a hundred-year-old wood schooner uh, sailboat uh, with twelve people. It's another photography group, but it was a really great group. They were mostly pro, because it's a part of Greenland that's really hard to get to, and you pretty much have to go with a group, so you might as well yeah. go with a good group of like-minded people who are doing the same thing. So, you know, we would just, if the light and the, the setting was beautiful, we would stop and stay, and if it wasn't so great, we'd just keep going, so we were all on the same page with that. But we would sail around them. You know. Around the icebergs, right? Yeah. Which is what, one of those pictures. Some, yeah. yeah. Did that worry you getting to I mean, Would you start <laughs> thinking of, like, you know, Kate Winslet as you got closer <laughs> to them? And, yeah, that is the area where the Titanic hit an iceberg. Yeah, it's that's what you said. off of Greenland, which right. I didn't really think about, but it, that was the area. Yeah, I never really thought it was up there. Off the, I, I think yeah. off more the southwest part of Greenland. So I'm really, I'm, I guess I'm really bad at geography because I want to know we how, something, the how side, something's coming out of Northampton is going to go up to, I mean, obviously it happens. Where were they going to, New York? Or? They are going to New York okay. and they were leaving yeah. from England to go to New York, so Liverpool so, or wherever. Yeah, I think they were getting close to Nova Scotia, if you think Nova Cause, Scotia. Yeah, because England's actually really far up there. England, yeah, yeah. because it's right. not that far from Iceland, right. actually. Scotland is Right, and what keeps close. it warm is the jets, is the Yeah, that's why Iceland Gulf is stream, warmer right. than Greenland because of the Gulf Stream. Which, of course, we're going to lose at some point here. But let's not get negative. <laughs> so do you, is, it, is, is, any, is any of that sense of the loss of the desert or the loss of environment that we're talking about or alluding to in general here, is, does, is, does that show up in your work, like the work that's at the Porch Gallery right now? Um, well, not directly. Uh, I, I say I, I'm so concerned with the environment, environmental issues and protecting it. But, you know, I'm not overtly political at all in that way. But as someone said, my work is I just show it as it is and hope that people make it interesting and beautiful enough that people get it and want to. Well, it's interesting it. and beautiful, and it's also playful, which I wasn't expecting because, you know, mm -hmm. I had been reading about you, and, and I'd helped the girls do some things. The girls. I'd helped Lisa and Heather do some things. And so I was expecting something that was going to be much more austere and kind of riddled with existential angst, and that is not what I saw. I saw stuff that was really playful and delightful, and I find that really, really intriguing. And one of the things I realized today was the back, you have a background in doing backgrounds for animation. Right. And, and it's on your website, some of the work that you have done, not for animation, but that 
you know, other kind of, of yeah, kind of yeah, other kind of painting, and I I love those, and <clears throat> I started thinking about that, and I was thinking that that's incorporated into your paintings and into your drawings, and whether I know it or not, that that's what's going on. That's what makes it sort of delightful to me because it sort of takes me back to that place. Are you talking about the drawings more? I'm talking about the drawings right now, but I'm also talking about the stuff that I saw on the website. Right. But when I was looking at the Joshua trees that are on that, you know, the two big ones. Right. uh, And then the the waterfall. I was really paying attention to the background of it and how you get these very thin lines doing the rocks and things like that. And I I was wondering why it was that way. And then I saw on your website some other stuff. Remember how I said to you yesterday, I find this really delightful? You know, it's such a fun drawing. Right. And that I think that's part of it for me. Well, yeah, the animation. I was working for Nickelodeon a lot. And, um, you know, it influences me, and that's all kind of fun and graphic. and Graphic and, and great. But, yeah, and, uh, but I also was trained to do more Disney-style background painting, which is really detailed, landscape, really technical. And I learned, all, I, had, I perfected all those skills, and now I feel like I'm in this process of unlearning as a fine artist. So will it's we, really hard. Will it's we way be, more difficult than you would think. Will we be seeing less and less of that kind of background work? You will see less and less. <laughs> so less and less, period. <laughs> no, less, maybe less and less detail. I don't know. Uh-huh. They, in the animation, they talk about a style of painting. that They call it lost and found. Uh-huh. Because the Disney painters are actually quite brilliant. The way they figured out how reality, capturing reality and paint, it's more real if you lose detail in places. Like bricks on a wall. Well, yeah, if every square inch is covered with detail, yeah. it doesn't look real. It's right. all like right up in your face. Right, so, right, right. Uh-huh. So, uh, that's a part of their technique, technical philosophy, but I'm taking it to heart in a different way uh, in my personal painting right now. It's not so much what's in this show, but it's in my big landscapes. They're getting way more abstract and loose, and then I'll pull in detail and just a part of it. So one of the things that I'm curious about in your work is because of, it, because of what it's about. It's about deserts. It's about vast, empty spaces. It's about your reaction to it. Right. Uh, and how it actually, uh, what I'm gathering is it actually really calms you down. Right. I know it calms me down when, right. I, when I do that kind of stuff and take my long hikes around here or whatever. I just, right. It's, it's, it's better than therapy. Do you ever see or have you done large installations that sort of seek to recover that within the space? or Not, not really. That's Could you even do really. that? Would that make sense to do that? Oh, I think I'm working towards something more like that now since I'm working in different media right now. I'm, wor- I'm starting to work in film, photography, drawing, painting. I, I'm trying to... Tell me about the filmmaking. I saw a little, a little thing, like a music video, on your uh, right. website, which was uh, the composition of that was beautiful. How you were breaking up the frame and keeping the uh, the actors, the performers, you know, in opposition to each other, and right, just, headed the opposite yeah, way just that itself was it. was very you know said a lot of what was going on. It was a nice song. Is that your friend that you were ta- talking about uh, earlier? Well, there uh, Joshua Tree is full of musicians and some really talented ones, and it's I've been working with a lot of them. My personal films are they're non narrative art films, short. They're very visual. What's the longest one? 
I did a 20 minute long that's one. That's long. the longest. And that yeah. was actually a three screen video piece installation. I worked on it for a long time. It's called No Destination because it's about the way I go out in the desert and my work and I like to go and not have a particular destination. So the the three screens, they're all shot from the car. So the yeah. front screen was like looking out the front yeah. of the car and the two side ones are like looking out the side. Yeah. But it's the same image. Kind of like Abel Gantz, if you know Abel Gantz. But it's not, yeah. Yeah. But they're uh, not the same. I mean, the sides are not the same as the front. Wow. So I worked with different musicians composing pieces for that. And then, like that music video, they asked me to do that from seeing my work. And they're... That's, a con that's, that's wonderful. That's yeah, a real compliment. Yeah, and they tour a lot. They're yeah. really well known in Europe. And that video's gotten a lot of... A lot of hits on YouTube, so that's great. Um, we've been given the signal to open up for questions, but before we do, I'd like to point out that among other things that Diane does, and she's alluding to it now, she's also um, a songwriter. And there's she, there's a poem on her website which I, I highly I, I encourage you to read. But I love the last four lines of it, which are actually lyrics to a song that she wrote. And I think it's I, for me. It's, I write lyrics. I music yeah you write lyrics right. but but the before that is also a poem but at any rate it, it certainly exists as a poem it's very beautiful and I think for me it was a, it was yet another way into her work um, do you mind go, go ahead you read it. Um, I'm not going to sing it so it's, it, there's a hot wind blowing at the edge of the night there's a bad idea banging real hard at my door I got a dust devil in my brain telling me I don't have far to go to go and sing. I love that. Really congratulations. And it's kind of dark. It's dark, but it's but then you look at your work, especially the, the porch right now, and it's so lively. It's so delightful. It's really, really beautiful. Even when it's the icebergs and they're austere, it's still delightful. And this, I don't know, spun it for me in that whole nether way. So congratulations on being a good writer, too. Well, writing is very difficult. I'm sure everybody agrees. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so now we're going to open it up to the audience, and, and Lila has a question. Oh, I have a first question. Yes, please. So what I always love about this podcast is that we have participants in almost every episode, and then on the opening of the show, mm -hmm. to ask about the process. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us what is the typical day as an artist working with creation? Well, I know they're all different, but... Right. Well, I have a studio separate from my house now that I actually drive to, which for the last year I've had that, and that's been, that's changed everything for me. So I get up and leave and go, and then I'm there all day, and it's just amazing. So, and it's big enough. I have I have an area where I paint, an area where I draw, and, and I have my little computer station where I edit film and photographs. So I'm free to work on it. And I tend to go work circularly. I mean, I might get really involved in a series of drawings and just sit down and do it. But I like, I'll do that for a while and then I'll move over and do something else for a while. It just depends what's working for me that day. So, And I'm, I'm pretty much like 10 to 6 is normal. 
kind of daylight hours. Yep. Yes, Emily. Well, I've always been interested in technology all along. I used to work on color Xerox um, when those machines were in there before computers and all that. So I've always kind of kept up with it. But I don't like to, I don't like, I've never liked to draw or paint on the computer because I love photography and film and computers that have it all done. I love it and hate it at the same time, because if I do too much of that, then I just want to pick up a piece of paper and a pen and just do something and do it. I like it all, actually. Anybody else? Yes. Right. Um, you know, I'm sure this applies to all a lot of different disciplines, whatever you do in your life, and all the skills you've developed over your life. And for me, it's technique, because I did have so much training to do animation and all that. And it's not really the way I want to do fine art. So I, I have to unlearn it. I have to release it and let it go. And it's really difficult. And I think at a certain point, you know, you let it all go, and then you're going to take some of it back, <laughs> and then maybe let it go again. I feel like I'm in the middle of that end process. Like I'm taking some back, but then I'm really letting it go. It's like the Zen painters, you know, they spent their whole lives learning how to do the perfect one-stroke circle, and they feel like they can't do that till they're like 80 years old. So there's something to be said about aging and, you know, and have gaining all that experience and being able to do that and let it go. And then dropping all the non-essential stuff, which is really what they're doing. So, so they can get that perfect, you know, back to the beginner's right. line. Right. But yeah. it's not easy doing no. one stroke. So. Not at all. And that's sort of and that's like my big paintings of the Joshua trees. They're really yeah. immediate and fast yeah. to start. And then I sit and look at them and think about it. And you were saying that there were like three layers to the structure of the building, the drawing, the creation of those those paintings that are, you know, we were talking about yesterday that were right. the difference between Zen and Taoist. Right, really fast and loose, which uh -huh. is more the Taoist way of working. Right. And then sit and think about it and get more focused and more Zen about it. Those, like I said, the, the, I find those particularly delightful. There's such a sense of fun to them. Um, any other questions? Lila. That's a really difficult question. That's why I asked it. I don't think there's any easy answer or set way. 
I, I know when I was in art school, I had a drawing teacher, Sam Chikalian, who's a pretty well-known artist, and he's tough. And he said, okay, you all, you're going to all have to make 300 bad drawings before you're ever going to make a good one. <laughs> and we're all young, and we're like, no, we're not. We're good. We know what we're doing. And it, how depressing to hear that. But it was it was truthful and it was harsh, but it, it was true. Well, I love what you just said there, where you said you were all tough, and you're like, no, we're not. Gonna right, you know because it all. There's something about that young ego right. that you need to encourage and take into the world. Right, and it can take a lot of knocks. Yeah. So, so essentially, what you're saying is just keep working. Yeah, just Don't keep stop. doing keep it. Working, just no keep doing what. it over and over, yeah. and you know, you'll get there. Yes. But it's a not an easy life. You Obviously, two will make the gotta, perfect circle. you got to figure out how to make a living somehow. So that's the hard part. Well, oh. thank you both. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. For Lyle. commentating. And Diane, I can't wait to go to the opening. I encourage everyone to walk up to the Porch Gallery, Ojai. It's Ojai Day, so it's hard to drive there. If you do want to drive, you can go up Fox Street and sort of go up ground and around. But, um, but go see Diane's work. The icebergs are that which are not the pieces here. These three pieces are the ones at the foundation. Um, the icebergs will be the addition of what you see and also some larger drawings and, and her mandalas, and they are gorgeous. If you see the icebergs, especially the iceberg in the la back room, look at all the color that's actually in that photograph. It's phenomenal. And then remember, like we were saying, it's all water in that picture. Right, and they're, they're, not, they're not touched up. At all. They're really that's beautiful. The, the so color well is what you're going to see in these photos. It's, it's pretty amazing.